Welcome again to another episode of Life is Wonderful.love podcast, where we talk about recovery, emotional intelligence, healing, life. Don't you want to live your best life? <laughs> of course you do. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Glenn C. How are you doing, Glenn? I'm doing well, Hugo. Yourself? I'm doing well, too. It's always good to talk recovery. I always say every day, 24 hours, we have 24 hours to live the steps, live in recovery, and just embrace the life that we want. Absolutely. All right. Why don't you tell the audience one thing you love? Uh, it's hard to narrow it down to just one thing, but if I'm going to you know, think about what's going on presently, it's my dogs. I've got two corgis, and I just adopted an Italian greyhound, and I love them to death. And what are their ages? Uh, the two corgis are three and two, and the Italian greyhound is just under a year. And I think you learn a lot about people. What are their names? The two corgis, so we have Kai uh, and we have Luna. And then the Greyhound is Serenity. I actually, she's my first stray that I adopted. She was abandoned at one of our one of our alumni events at the company I work for, Positive Recovery. And she was just there. And, you know, I didn't realize how much of a bleeding heart I am. And I just, I just couldn't, you know, we couldn't find her anywhere. And I just couldn't walk away with the knowledge that this dog, which is just going to be like on this beach by itself. So I picked her up and I named her Serenity. I thought that was appropriate. It is. <laughs> well, let's just dive right into the questions. Question one. You work in sober living. What is good advice to someone coming out of inpatient treatment and going into whether it's 30, 90, six months of sober living? Yeah, just keep it simple at first. Don't do what I did. So I have actually been to damn near every Oxford house in Houston during a previous period of me attempting to be sober. And I just didn't follow the rules. You know, I wasn't ready. Um, I said that I wanted the accountability. And then when the accountability came my way, like on the little things, like, hey, man, you didn't make your bed. You didn't check in. Like, I was really resistant. And how dare you? You know, and I just didn't make it. So I would either, you know, be, I was either asked to leave or ultimately because, you know, hindsight is 2020. I just wasn't really ready to, to fully like do recovery. And I ended up relapsing. I ended up relapsing out of three of them. So what I would tell people is to, you know, cause a lot of times we'll say, I want accountability. You know, this is why I want sober living. I need structure. Just be prepared to, to walk into that because there, that, that we, you know, a sober living, if it's a good sober living place is going to deliver, which means you might perceive people kind of like policing you or, you know, they're in your, I say in your face a lot, but hey, you need to wake up. Did you do this? Did you do your chores? And for a lot of us that don't like to really take direction, that can be a challenge, especially if I, I you know, I've kind of been self-will run riot my whole life. So I would say to somebody, just kind of know what you're getting into, like go into it for the right reasons. You know, don't treat it like a flop house because usually, you know, that gets weeded out really quickly. And I would just say that, you know, just be prepared because sober living is a microcosm. It's essentially an ecosystem that's comparable to the real world. So you're going to have people that you might not usually mix with. You're going to have different personalities, different ages, cultures, creeds, and just know that it's not designed to be, you know, this perfect, you know, Disney system where everybody gets along. So 
I will have to navigate some challenging or the person going into sober living will have to navigate some challenging situations. I may have to, like if I'm somebody that I'm a people pleaser, I may have to work on my boundaries. I may have to work on being firm with my boundaries. I may have to work on, you know, not being a yes man and and lending my car or lending rides to everybody. So a lot of those things are challenging for us because um, it gives us an opportunity. So what I, what I tell people is if, if I can perfect or navigate the sober living environment during my early recovery, then I'm setting myself up for for success in the real world. I agree. Tell me one thing when they ask you to leave, because I'm, I always know that, us as either addicts or, you know, former, you know, the whole arena, especially around addiction is, is, you know, this whole fear of rejection. And I think society as a whole has a big fear of rejection. When you're asked to leave, even though you were going against the rules, you knew you were pushing the boundaries. Is there a feeling of rejection that, oh God, even sober living doesn't want me? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I do. So that's an interesting question. I actually never thought about it that way, but I know that a big component or a big, you know, defect of, or just a part of, of the addiction is self-pity, you know, kind of like, woe is me. Also the cognitive dissonance. Let's say I'm in sober living and everything's going well. And then I, you know, violate a couple rules or I get into, I do something that is not on par with what the sober living, you know, kind of expects. And I do kind of abruptly get asked to leave. So I may go and tell my family or my, you know, the people that are in my support network, like, hey, why'd you leave sober living? Ah, man, screw that place, man. That place wouldn't work out. So the cognitive dissonance is I'm kind of lying to myself and I'm matching my reality to, to kind of self-soothe in a way that where, I, where I'm not fully accepting, like, yeah, I just, I didn't do what I was asked to do. But, and then of course the, you know, the, the, the rejection, you know, but I think that it's, it's, if there is an element of rejection, we've got to be really aware that it's not just a, another complex, unhealthy defense mechanism of me just resorting to self-pity, you know, kind of like what you said, Hugo, about man, nobody wants me, uh, you know, and that's just simply not true. You know, because that comes from me, that me feeling like I'm not wanted. Yes, I know we have abandonment issues and we have deep seated trauma, some of us, but that feeling of that I'm not wanted, I have to realize that that still comes from me, you know, that's, and, and that's, that's hard for us sometimes. Cause that means I have to really dig down and be honest with myself about the reality of the situation, which was, you know, I was asked to leave for a specific reason. I got you. So let's go into question two. You were on many substances, mainly meth. Tell, Boy, us about, I... tell us about the insanity. And also, I want you to include, tell us about the withdrawals. Because I always hear people like, well, I just don't want to get off this drug because of the withdrawals. Tell us about the withdrawals from meth and how bad they were or how long it took. Oh, man, we only got 20 minutes. <laughs> but I will tell you, you know, the insanity... I'm going to try not to throw a bunch of cliches out there, but essentially related to all the drugs... I did things that I never thought I would do. You know, I never thought I'd put a needle in my arm. I never thought I would see the inside of a prison. Um, I saw the inside of seven, not because I'm some crazy, badass gangster criminal, just because I simply couldn't stop using while I was under probation. I mean, they, they told me, Glenn, all you got to do is we'll give you a chance. You got a pretty serious charge. Just don't pick up this thing that you like. And I'm like, okay. And I picked it up nine times. So that's insane in and of itself. 
but specifically related to meth. Um, so there's no, you know, as, as you and I both know, you know, I, you know, I work in the industry and I work in an inpatient, there's no clinical withdrawal. So like, for instance, somebody like me that, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm using meth. I'd like to get off of it. There's no medically monitored detox. Doesn't mean there's no withdrawals. There's, it's just not a medically necessary. It's not medically necessary to monitor somebody that's coming off of meth. It's super psychologically uncomfortable. So what I always talk to my clients about is this last time that I got sober, which has led me to four years, which I just celebrated this month, is it took me, I break down recovery into three stages. There's the first stage, and this is applicable to every substance. There's the stabilization phase. The middle phase is kind of like the foundational, like, okay, I'm, I'm stabilized, but I'm kind of figuring it out. I'm laying the, the bedrock. And the third phase is clarity. Like I figure out what my place is in recovery in this world. But the first part, the stabilization phase, it can vary based on the substances. This last time, my stabilization phase took me eight months. And what I mean by that is I'm sober, but I'm also, I've got severe anhedonia, can't feel any pleasure. I have no interest, no motivation. I'm crying all the time. I remember I was in the movie theater with my parents and we were watching a, a Marvel movie and it was like a really happy scene, just kind of like this big energy. And I just started bawling for like 30 minutes and my parents were like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know. You know, just all these emotions came back. Um, I remember one time I was folding socks in my room. This was about five months in. And then I just got really overwhelmed because the task of all this stimuli that was in front of me, it just, for, for whatever reason, where I was at mentally, it was just very, very difficult. And it seems so silly because that wasn't my baseline before meth. But while being sober and getting off meth, like little things, I was very clumsy I had, it took me a long, I had some beginning signs of tardive dyskinesia. I had some neurological tics. I would kind of like tick around, which made me really embarrassed to go out in front of public. I actually, uh, I had this really, I'll tell you a really quick, funny story that I was, I'd gotten sober in Florida and then I'd moved back to Katy and I, I, you know, I wasn't able to work because I was just, I felt crazy. I felt like I was jerky and awkward and couldn't articulate. And so I would, you know, and about four months in, I said, I need to start getting out of the house. And I would walk to this gas station to buy cigarettes. I'm like, if I don't do anything all day, I'm going to go to a meeting and I'm going to go walk and get out of the house and buy cigarettes. So I would go to this gas station that was in front of my house, but I would wait outside for all the customers to leave because I was so scared of human interaction because I was so in my head and anxious and, and you know, just full of fear. It felt crazy. So I would wait for people to leave. And whenever the last customer would walk on, I'd walk in and really quickly buy my cigarettes and I'd leave. And I would, I did this for a couple months, but I remember one time I went to go buy some cigarettes and there was a bunch of customers in the store. And so I'm outside waiting, looking through the window, like a crazy person waiting for these customers to leave. So I'm working myself up and getting anxious. So I finally go in to buy these cigarettes and I was so, I'd worked myself up so much that when I went to go ask for the specific brand of cigarettes, I had like combined two different brands. I was like, can I get a pack of Camel, Camel Marlboro Lights? And I kind of stumbled over my words. And the clerk looked at me and he was like, Camel Marlboro Lights? What do you mean? And just that awkward interaction, it sent me in full fight or flight. I ended up leaving all my money on the counter and I ran out of the store. Now that's me at five months sober. So to kind of come back to the question is my stabilization period, just getting off the meth, it, it was, it was, it was rough. And I always tell my clients that I work with, just, I don't say that to scare them, but just expect like, there's a lot of things that aren't talked about a lot in early recovery. Basically it's, it's challenging. Early recovery is weird. 
it's hard, it's weird, it's awkward. There's a lot of anxiety, depression, you know, erratic behavior, depending on the substances. So if you can make it through that, it will get better. Guaranteed. So. Yeah, I always say the only way to grow is through pain or being uncomfortable, whether it's, you know, just trying to understand kind of a new way of living. And I also say that emotional work is the most exhausting type of work. And if you can at least comprehend that you will be tired, you will be exhausted. And also you are going to feel some type of pain or some, all these different emotions or as well as be uncomfortable or sweat or just get angry at the world. But that's the way to, that's the way out. Absolutely. And, and I, and I, and I do say, I kind of throw this scare tactic, scare tactic statistics out there. And I say that that is the, what you just described. You go, that's in my opinion, one of the primary reasons why more of us don't get sober because getting through everything you just described for a lot of us is very painful and it's very challenging. And if I'm trying to do it on my own, like without the aid of a sponsor or a mentor, it's going to be difficult. So yeah, I completely agree, man. I know. And that's why I think sometimes us who have either recovered or in kind of the healing treatment also have to look at it. We know what these, why people struggle so much. And sometimes we have to look at it differently. And that's why I like what positive recovery is doing. That's how I started to push things in the whole life is wonderful. Look at it from other angles and seeing ways to how to get people to the other side. Because there's too many people not getting there. And that's why I say, well, sometimes we have to ask the question, well, what could we do better? Instead of always saying, oh, you just didn't get it. Oh, you just don't want it hard enough. It's like, no, maybe... You know, we all learn differently. But let's go into question three. Tell us what community means to you, you know, or recovery, however you want to interpret that question. Sure. You know, when I when I was, you know, when I was thinking about this question, you know, when I hear the word community, the first thing that comes to is uh, Johan Yari's famous TED talk on everything we know about addiction is wrong, where he talks about the rat park and uh, the opposite of addiction is connection. And, you know, I myself and, the, and many of the clients that I work for really identified with that because when you think about the characteristics of addiction, I mean, it's a disease of isolation, whether, whether you believe it's a disease or not, it, I want to hide. I don't, you know, I know what I'm doing, even if, you know, people already kind of know I'm an addict and I'm struggling, I still am full of so much shame and guilt and I, and I have my little rituals and I feel gross and unworthy. So I'm, I'm in hotels and I'm in rooms with the lights off and I'm drinking by myself and I'm just doing things because I don't want you to see me. So the opposite of that is, is community and connection. And so it's a scary part for a lot of us because that means I'm going to step into some vulnerability. That means, you know, for instance, if I go to IOP or treatment or meeting, somebody's going to see me or somebody's going to, you know, talk to me in a way that maybe I'm not used to. And now I don't have the aid of this you know, I always equate it to like a, like a blanket as a kid. I don't have this warm blanket, you know, i.e. drugs and alcohol that have made me feel comfortable, albeit in a very destructive way. So now I've got to be kind of part of a community, you know? And so I think about, you know, I think about it, I think about, so I walked away from the rooms, the 12 step rooms in 2011, you know, I was on a you know period of, of sobriety and 
you know, I, something happened and I just decided, you know, fuck it, you know, I, I'm going to go. And I stayed out for just under eight years and ended up going to prison and, and all this stuff. But what happened was I remember I would be in my room and I would look, I would pick up my phone, like muscle memory. And I would, I would hit the text message, you know, app thread and I would pull up and there was nobody in my phone communicating with me, no parents, no friends, no family, because not only did I pushed everybody away, but you know, I also didn't want to be a part. So I had, you know, there was, there was no community, there was no connection. And I remember I would always pick up my phone and I would feel this, this equal parts sadness, but also equal parts resentment, like sadness that was like, man, like, I don't, nobody's talking to me. I have no friends, but then immediately go into like this resentful, like, well, you know, what? fuck people. I don't need people. And I put my phone down, but I would keep picking my phone up knowing that there's nobody on there. And I would look at this empty text thread. And just this overwhelming feeling of sadness that like, I'm, I'm alone. And so I did that for many, many years. And then now I look at my text thread now. I mean, virtually everybody in my life is, is either somebody I work with or somebody in recovery. And I'm, I'm a part of all these conversations and these dynamics with people, um, not only in my recovery community, which is a 12 step program, but things like the Phoenix group, positive recovery, where I work at and virtually everything I do involves other people. And that alone is probably not probably it is the number one thing that keeps me in the middle of this because the fulfillment and joy I get out of being available for other people, having genuine reciprocal conversations, sharing just a really basic moment with somebody or you're conversing about a movie or a book or something. And it's genuine. It's not based on quid pro quo, give or take. It's not based on, you know, these false pretenses, manipulation. I'm trying to get stuff out of you. Um, it's, it's beautiful, you know, and I think that going back to the sober living question and, and just recovery, it gives us an opportunity to be a part of life, which I'm going to go on a limb and say that just about every single one of us, that's what we truly want. We want to be a part of not only ourselves, but we want to be a part of people in in, in life. You know, We, we, we yearn for that. I mean, we're social creatures and addiction takes that away from us. So community to me. And then recovery, you know, just to give you a quick answer. Recovery to me is, you know, the, the, the definition, the Webster Oxford definition is, you know, getting back something that you lost. But for me, it's, it's gaining something that I never had, which, which was a life, you know, even before addiction, you know, I really didn't have a lot of things figured out. And then addiction kind of, kind of tricked me and said, Hey, like this, this is an answer. And then I realized that it just, it makes you more confused and more lost. And then recovery has given me the opportunity to have things that, that I've never experienced, you know, and it's, it's truly a beautiful thing. Yeah. That's why I always say when people say, Oh, I don't like going to, I don't like going to meetings. I go, well, you're missing the point. Part of the reason to go to meetings or having a home group is that family is that sense of belonging that you have a place to go where you can really feel like someone gets you, someone understands you. You don't have to explain anything. And whether or not the topic or the meeting itself, you know, is meaningful, you get something out of it because at least you get to say hi or you see someone you know or you hug someone. And I always refer this and look at it even from the sports world. Anybody who's played a sport for a long period of time, at some point, they're tired of the game or their body is beat up. You know, even people that have been professionals, they say they never miss the game, but what they miss is the locker room. 
because the locker room was all those connections and they no longer have it. And now they're back at home and they don't have all the, all that connection. So I always tell people, yeah, that's the reason why we have fan, why we have a family or we want a family or we want groups that we have some type of association with. But here it is. But I appreciate your time, Glenn. Likewise, man. And this is going to conclude this episode of Life is Wonderful. Love podcast. Cool.